Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Raw Knuckles Podcast. Please like, follow, and subscribe. And you want to hear the worst? A guy that went to Catholic memorials teaching a guy from Groton School how to use modern <laughs> yeah, technology. Yeah, I was going to say, this is what, like, when two old guys get into technology. This hey, hey, weird. old <laughs> no, little fucker. Let me, let me just say this to you, uh, Mr. Stapleton. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I once played with Pat Whitey Stapleton. <laughs> okay. Was, no uh, relation. No relation. Summit Series defenseman, Chicago Blackhawk, former Bruin, and Cincinnati Stinger. And uh, Wayne Gretzky's first professional coach. So I want to hear respect from the Stapleton side of it. <laughs> Whitey. Whitey. You know what Whitey said to me, we played the Russians, and Whitey said, uh, they, I, was a, I was a defenseman, and they moved me to wing, and then they put me back on defense for this game. He said to me, kid, just give me the puck and stand behind me. <laughs> <laughs> when I stepped on the ice, I never backed down. And I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. <laughs> I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. All right, let's get going here. Paul Stewart, awesome to have you. Um, obviously, you know Whitey Stapleton, <laughs> yeah. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I played with his dad, and then I and it's funny because they, they it's they, not his dad. <laughs> no, but I, I I played with Mike Stapleton. There's a Mike, yeah, yeah. He played he played in Cornwall Junior, and then I had him in the National League, and a good kid. And I knew his wife Jackie, who sadly Whitey's gone, and they lost two of their daughters to cancer. And I, the Stapletons were the were the nicest, finest people. And to be a teammate of his with his great reputation was to me an honor. And I, I, I always had to pinch myself. And we would go out for dinner a lot together. And it was the first time I ever saw anyone eat a piece of roast beef. And they'd, he'd order it and say, I want it blue. It was practically yeah. like, it was practically blue. raw. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I told him, I said, this is why you're not as tall as you could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Stewie, Stewie, let's get to it here. Growing up in Boston, and obviously we um, that uh, the long lin lineage of Stewarts from your your grandpa to your dad uh, refereeing. I know your dad refereed a few games I played in as a kid. Um, uh, just a, a, come from a great Irish family. Um, your brother Jimmy. Very good friend who uh, was the equipment guy at Northeastern. I absolutely love Jimmy Stewart, your brother. Um, how's it? How's it for you growing up there? What was it like getting into hockey? And did you? I mean, the Stewart family—they you all played sports. Billy, yourself, Jimmy—you're all involved in sports. Um, how did it get going for you with the hockey, though? Well. Primarily, my dad was a three-sport coach of Boston English High School, which is the oldest public high school in America. And 37 years he was there and missed only 10 days. And everything was seasonal. So in the summer, August, we would go to English and get all the football equipment ready. And he was the head football coach, the athletic director. And then right after Thanksgiving, the hockey season would start. And... We'd just go, and then in, in the spring at Billings Field there in West Roxbury, we would chase the foul balls, and my dad would give us a nickel, and it was 
and he did three sports as an official at, at yeah, every right? level. Up Baseball, to the, hockey, and football, right? Yeah, and he did the College World Series in Omaha. He did the NCAA hockey. He did games such as West Point playing Pitt and uh, Harvard playing Yale. and But, you know, big, big football games. And I inevitably was the ball boy or hole in the stakes or stick boy. or I always tell the story about being the director of officiating for ECAC hockey. And I went to Cornell one day and the, uh, and the associate AD uh, saw my so sons and I sitting on the, on the deck, the rear deck of the, of the car. And she came over and said, hi, and started to tell the boys about line or rank. And she said, I bet you didn't know how many great players were there. I said, well, you see that football stadium in 1962, my dad refereed a Columbia Cornell game and you had a kicker named Gogolak, and my dad was the Mike Gogolak, yeah. right? And, yeah. Well, they were the first two soccer-style kickers in the U.S., and next to Jan Stenerud, who went to Kansas City, and his records yeah. were unbelievable. So I was the ball boy chasing balls all over the stadium, and when it was 5 o'clock, we were sitting on the deck of the, the back deck of the car having a sandwich, and and uh, my father looked at his watch and said, it's 5.30, time to go. And he took his football bag and threw it in the car and pulled out his hockey bag. And he went in and refereed Cornell playing uh, McMaster. So, and I was the stick boy for, for Ned Harkness. And you, you, you understand that because my grandfather was such a great athlete, a baseball player, and then he was coaching hockey and refereeing hockey. Won a Stanley Cup, right, with the Blackhawks, right? And coaching. He was GM, yeah. yeah. And and he was 13 years a referee in the NHL. And at the same time, he started as a baseball player, signed with Chicago in 1919, the year they threw the series. He was uh, sent to Louisville, hurt his shoulder. But he went on in baseball to become a 22-year National League umpire with five World Series, four All-Star games. Uh, he, he did the uh, Johnny v Vandermeer back-to-back no-hitters, and he did uh, uh, the first night game played. And they back in the day, they, they experimented with the coloring of baseballs to allow players to see the balls better at night. And he, um, he umpired those games. And he was – so I think to get to your – answer i saw the respect that people gave my grandfather and my dad wherever i went and i think and because i never bought a ticket to anything your father was an awesome uh, listen the, the refereeing and the umpire and all that aside he was just an awesome human being your father was such a good person good he took he took right? a liking to kids and he always looked out for people his 11th command was was um if you, if you have the ability to help someone and you don't, there's a sin you can never get rid of. And I think that's been passed down in my family, four generations, both of my boys now, one named after the late John McCauley, Wes's dad, Wes McCauley. Yeah. And it's the torch being passed, like in your Montreal dressing room with, with – uh, to you from failing hands, the torch is passed. And I think that, you know, the, what better way to stay in the game – and be a part of the game. And people ask me all the time when they see pictures of me or they read my book, they say, you're always smiling. And I say, well, when I would go into ranks, that's that's where all my friends were. Yeah. And yeah. even 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 when friction was part of the game and it wasn't always a lot of fun, 
it was still the game. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The only fucking time I smiled on the ice is when I scored a goal and it was, you know, not to make it 5-2 and it was a second goal of the game for us. Or when you were refereeing a game. Because I'm like, fucking Stewie's here tonight. I'm not going to get screwed. Did your dad prefer one of the sports over the other? Like, did he have a favorite out of the three? Well, he always said that uh, that hockey was the most challenging because you had to be able to skate and make decisions and be able to keep up with the players. And, you know, the, in college hockey, there was no red line. And they could they could go as fast as they as they could but you know being the coach of high school sports and his officiating in three sports he stayed in pretty good shape and it was only later on in life when he when he got ill that things you know it was it was blessing the day that he passed because so what the, year did he pass your dad again 87 and i was yeah. in edmonton i worked the game that night and gretzky had six goals <laughs> and i disallowed the seventh it was minnesota versus <laughs> Edmonton and uh, he passed away it was tough you know because you know you I spent all the time I always three feet behind my dad and yeah. as I say I'd duck under the turnstiles I, I never bought a ticket to the Fenway Park or to the Patriots or or, or Boston Arena or the Garden right. I, just walk most, in. most Boston kids didn't you know right <laughs> but they all yeah. did say oh the, the Stewart kids here <laughs> and and away we'd go but but how about minor hockey for you, Stewie? Like when well, you I started with with Hyde yeah. Park, yeah, with because because JP rink. JP didn't wait. You got like we right near you had well MDC eventually came on the uh, on yeah. the, uh, the the Parkway there. But um, no, I started at, at you had Lars Anderson outdoor I, rink. Well, we we lived in Dorchester originally, which is south yeah. of. South, south end of Boston. Yeah. And then we moved to Jamaica Plain, the house that my grandfather built with his Stanley yeah. Cup money. Yeah. When he won the Cup in 38. And we we moved there after he'd passed in in 64. And we were there. And I moved over to Brookline Hockey because Lars Anderson was right close. And Eddie and Jackie Corrine, the Corrine brothers, ran the youth hockey. And, of course, both of them played for my grandfather when – he was the coach of the U.S. national team in 1957. So I didn't have to go very far to skate. And I always, and even on snowy days, I would take the trolley into the arena. And yeah. the place would be shut down. And I had a key just like, you know, Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I get in the back door and I'd skate and skate by the, by the light of the, of the street lights and the, and, the, and the exit signs. And, and Tim. Uh, the arena, old Boston arena, it's Northeastern's rink now. It's called Matthews Arena. Mm -hmm. It was shaped like an egg. Like the boards wasn't like a typical NHL rink. It was oval. Well, it was the craziest it, rink. It was the, the craziest old, rink. It's the oldest indoor multi-sport facility in the U.S., built in 1912. And originally they had a, a league called the Can-Am League. And my grandfather would come home from baseball and he would be the manager, Mr. Brown, who owned the Celtics later on uh, and was president of the garden, Boston garden. They built the garden in 28 because they needed a bigger place because the arena only sat about 6,500, but 
they when I was a boy growing up, I mean that's where the the wrestlers Killa Kowalski and and Haystacks Calhoun and I knew yeah. them all. And yeah. you know people would say to me, you know, what a life you've had. You know, it was just the inspiration and and watching the way my grandfather would sit there and 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 boom boom Jeffrey on or be scouting for Atlanta or someone and they'd all be sitting there jabbering and I soaked it all in, and I I decided after the very first time I ever skated at Boston arena that I wanted to be a pro hockey player. And I was five and I never wavered from that. It wasn't easy because as you know, Knuckles, we were the minority American oh, yeah. kids, high school, yeah, well, yeah. college and prep school. And I, I literally just like you had to fight our way in. We fought it's our funny way you in. say that. Like I, I can't say the first time I ever skated, I wanted to play hockey because I, I was like four years old and I skated on a puddle when my dad brought me over the old <laughs> Rexall drugs. And we're in the parking lot. It was Hyler's frozen. Tyler's drug. Yeah. And I was then with George Tyler yesterday. Yeah. And then um, I ended up skating. I remember falling down, getting up, and I friggin' loved it. And and then when all came, I I got the bug for the hockey. But Stewie, uh, you play high school in Boston. Where did you did you play at English? Do you go to English? No, my father um, had in his life had gone to English high yeah. and he went to Lawrence Academy. And he was there at the time when my grandfather was coaching Chicago as general manager. So where did and you go to high school? I ended up at a school in the town of Groton called Groton school. Oh, okay. And it's famous for rich kid school. Franklin Delano <laughs> Roosevelt was the president. He went there. Yeah. I mean, basically it was a, it was a, it was a world away from what I knew. I guess. Did you play and, other sports? Didn't you play? Weren't you good at football? I was, I was uh, all league in three positions in football. I'm in the Hall of Fame at, at Groton for football and hockey. And I le- I was the leading hitter in the uh, in the baseball in the private school league. I batted like 480. And then I went to college, and I I, I also played baseball there, and I I could hit. So you went to Penn. You went to Penn, Penn, Stewie. University of Pennsylvania. Why not Boston College? Well, because at the time when I was a boy, uh, Boston College was a neighborhood school, a lot of commuters. I just spent five years at Groton living there. In the summers, I went down to Cape Cod, and I was a a caddy, and I was a greenskeeper on the golf course, lifeguard. I, I really never went home except for vacations or holidays. And... There was an affliction my mother had with with uh, her drinking, and for me to go home after being away from when I was thirteen, you know, boring school and and caddying and living in a tent on the golf course and all that, I didn't want to give up my independence. Plus, the other thing is, you know, I would have had to, you know, basically live at home and that was not good for me. So I had a full ride to play football at Lafayette, which is down in Pennsylvania. And I said uh, at the time, 72, the WHA came along and Jack Kelly went to the Hartford or to the New England Whalers and Bob Crocker ended up as the coach of Penn. Yeah. He was looking for players and in Ivy League school, you needed to have some academic ability. And I had been at Groton, uh, 35 kids in my class, 200 in the school, 19 of the 35 went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Penn. And we had my, my 
classmate was a congressman, Rhodes Scholar. So it was, and another classmate is the uh, advisor to the Dalai Lama. So uh-huh. I mean, it's one of those types of schools, but th- they learned to get along with me. <laughs> I guess, I guess. I, I had five years there. And I've been honored as a distinguished alumnus. When you go into the rink, there's a case with, with my hall. Of, I, I've donated a lot of things there. It's no good sitting in your cellar. And uh, I, I gave him my Hall of Fame uh, plaque and, and my sweater from my last game and, and things like that, that that show the school how much it meant to me. And as well, other kids from now until whenever will walk in and say, that guy played here. Holy smokes. Yeah. Because you can still see some of the games I played in on, on YouTube and some of the things I had to do. Yeah. And and then I had 20 years reffing. I mean, and then. Well, keep, we got I'm, a lot to cover. We got I a mean, lot to cover. Well, I was I mean, going to say, the fuck to, out of up, to, up to this point when you went to school there, were you, was it reffing even a thought in your mind? No. It was right? like playing. Crazy, right? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. But. I, when I got to Penn, my father was a high school teacher and coach, and my brothers, one was at Northeastern and one was at UNH, and, and I was at Penn, and I had spent five years at Groton, and it was expensive, and he was a high school teacher and coach. I never asked my dad for a dime in the four years I was at Penn, and I'll, I'll just tell you that it wasn't that he didn't want to have the chance to help me. It's He, he just couldn't afford it. Teachers, they didn't make that much money. He made seven dollars a day. Yeah, and then all schools. the reffing. You understand why he did all that extra, right? He sent his his sons to three awesome colleges. I mean, hello, think you know, about we've it. We've all done well for ourselves, yeah. and we've been of service to the to the community. And and along the way, the the and my sister Pat, her two boys, uh, one works. He briefs the president every morning on naval intelligence at, at the White House, and uh, the other guy just retired from college officiating. He made the Frozen Four and played baseball at Babson and, and Chip McDonald and, and Scotty McDonald. So you look at the the aspects of what my father and mom uh, implanted in us, and we've done okay. Yeah, you've and, done great. You're kidding me? Uh, so, Stewie, how do you go from – I think people would like to know this. How do you go from sitting on the bench at Penn to make it in the NHL? And well, yeah, you played 21 games in the NHL. I don't care if you play one game, thousand games, you made it to the NHL. No. And how do you, how does that, how does that happen? Well, the Flyers were practicing at our rink and I had a job at the rink driving the Zamboni and helping out and sharpening skates and all those things. Cause my dad didn't have the dough and I had a, you know, work study. I was also a bouncer at a, at a, at a bar. <laughs> Well, no, that sounds no, more like you. Bouncer. Nobody fooled around. I, I was a bouncer at Caskin Flagon, too, across from Northeastern. Yeah. Not too many guys wanted to fool around with me, and I did what I had to do uh, as far as it went at Penn, and the Flyers would practice. I became friends with Barry Ashby, God rest his soul, and Terry Crisp, and and uh, and Bob Kelly, the you know the hound. Hound dog. And, and my first they, fight. My first fight in the NHL. Hound they, Dog they, Kelly? They saw me sitting and not playing, and Bob Kelly said to me, you know, the coach cut you. I said, yeah. He says, that's his decision. Now make a decision about his decision. Does it 
is it going to be the right thing for you? And I said, no, I want to play. He says, go get the hockey news, find the worst team in the worst league, and ask for tryout. It turned out that Steve Sterling, who played at BU, and Richie Hart, yeah. who you know, yeah. uh, were playing for Binghamton. And, and uh, Jim Matthews, who was Bobby Orr's next-door neighbor growing up in, in uh, Parry Sound, uh, owned the team. He had gone to Clarkson and played. So I got on a bus and went to Binghamton, and I played 46 games there, and I led the league in penalties <laughs> at the end of the Bingo. year. Bingo. Bingo. I was in slap shot. <laughs> so so I, I, I took myself from the from the, uh, from the, uh, the, ECA the dust heap to, yeah. to, to, to a pretty good spot, you know, sitting with Paul Newman and being in the movie and, and – Playing 46 games, I had 273 minutes in penalties. I had 44 majors for fighting. It's that record still stands, and I'm in the Hall of Fame in Binghamton for, I guess, playing and refing. But I got the opportunity to gain experience, and big I time to... when you were bouncing. When you were bouncing, <laughs> is that when you? <laughs> it was funny because when I was at Penn, I used to spar with Joe Frazier. And when I got home in the summers, when I was playing, I sparred with Marvin Hagler. And when I was Marvelous. playing in Cincinnati, I, I, I sparred with Aaron Pryor and Muhammad Ali's brother, uh, Mustafa. And I got pretty good at what I did. I took some karate and I, I boxed. And, and I grew up in a tough neighborhood in Dorchester, uh, you know, as a kid growing up and then in Jamaica playing. In JP. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I was in, into the arena a lot and you had to go through some sections. Oh yeah, you did. You had to, (laughs) you went on the Congo cruise, right? Yeah. So basically it came down to, I, I, I really had never had too much fear and I knew I could handle myself. And I, uh, so let's talk about the broom dusters and first starting the fight. Listen, college kids don't fight. I played college. I had one fight in college. Um, crazy. It was a one punch deal, but you, you go to the broom dusters and now all these Canadian kids, you're American Americans playing hockey back then. Um, was not, um, it was only, two it, it was only a few, yeah. So you get there. What What's that for? Like, I remember my first fight in the minors. Do you? And how did the, that go? Yeah, we played the Buffalo Norsemen, and they had a bunch of ex-NHL guys. And uh, they had a kid on the team, Wayne Warren. He was tough. And I was in front of the net. And, uh, you know, I played wherever they put me. And um, he and I got into it. He cut me. I came back out. And uh, I got an assist and was body checking and hitting. And they liked me. And they, they signed me to a big deal contract, 250 bucks a week. <laughs> I was happy. <laughs> and, right? And, and, I, and, and, and it was funny because Barry Ashby, who played defense for the Flyers and subsequently, subsequently succumbed to cancer, but um, he became a coach. And when he got ill... I stay, always stayed in touch with him. He, he said to me, I hear you're tearing it up down there. I said, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to make the National League. He says, you're going to make it. Because I had something inside of me that just wouldn't let me quit. Uh, and you didn't. Uh, you go from the Dusters to you went to the WHA, played a couple games with the Oilers, then down New Haven Nighthawks, one game, and then to the Stingers in the WHA, played 40 games, uh, back to bingo, 
uh, for 21, the American Hockey League. Back to the Stingers. Cape Cod Freedoms. Philadelphia Firebirds. Binghamton Dusters again. Now, did you ever get sick of, like, bouncing around? And you, there was no quit in you, but did you ever get sick of, like, bouncing around, saying, what am I doing here? No, I was never going to quit. I just felt that I needed to get – I mean, I had watched Milbury and Terry O'Reilly and other guys. They got with Bep Gwendolyn and they got with Cherry, and if I could find the right coach. And Demers was a guy that – Jock Demers was a guy that – treated me fairly and I got a chance to play not as much as I wanted to and you know I was in my mid mid 20s and pretty well they pigeonholed me was that in Quebec yeah where was that at every everywhere everywhere I went no I mean no with with Demers was that in Quebec all right so Cincinnati one year and Quebec another all right so he you were with him and Cincy and is he the guy responsible for having you and bringing you up to Quebec? No, what happened was uh, Cincinnati went into Birmingham and Glenn Sonmore was coaching there. And yeah. he, he had a, he had beaten Bilodeau, Baudouin, uh, Terbenchi. Jill, Jill yeah. Bad News Bilodeau. He had a, quite a Dave Hansen and he had quite a crew of guys. I and guess. A few of them I had stumbled across in the North American League and they got beat up pretty bad, and Rick Dudley was captain of Cincinnati and for Torque. They got beat up, beaten up, and uh, I was leading, you know, teams in in penalties. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, Flo Podfan was the head scout. He came to New Haven. I was playing against the the New Nighthawks Rangers farm team, and I was pissed at John Ferguson for not signing me to New York, and. So I sort of demolished his team. I took them all on. I got thrown out at the end of the first period. (laughs) I went out for pizza with my parents and came off, uh, went back to the rink. And uh, Flo Potvin said, we want to give you a tryout in Cincinnati. And I said, I'm not interested. I did that in Edmonton last year with Beb Gwynwin, and I got two games, one shift. I'm like, how the hell? And they signed Beaton. Frank never been beaten. Yeah. (laughs) I fought him first first game for Cincinnati and I hit him and he broke his leg and he's yeah. a good guy. I, I, yeah, I yeah. Always, you know, all those guys I've, I've played against and fought, I respected them. Only two guys I never had any time for were stick guys, Schmatz and uh, Jodzio who had, yeah, really, Rick Jodzio. He, he destroyed Tardif. Yeah. And, from behind. And, yeah. Bad. And yeah. so, you know, it didn't, when I was in Binghamton, my first year there, Billy Gratton, uh, and, and Kenny Gratton both played on the team. And, and uh, they said to me, you know, if you're going to stick here, kid, you better fight. So I pretty well, and the Flyers were big at the time and everybody was loading up. So, you know, that seemed to me to be the best way to do it. And I was buying time for myself. And I tell people all the time, you know, I, I have a realistic view of my ability I lasted 28 years on the ice as a pro in, 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 in playing wing and defense. It didn't matter. And I was always, you know, a good team guy. But I, then I stayed on the ice for 20 years reffing. And yeah. I was on the ice with guys like LaFleur and Burray and, and guys that could really skate. And I could keep up with them. Uh, there was no big deal. Bobby Howell and Hedberg and Nielsen, all those guys. So I felt 
that everything that happened to me as a as a as a college player and then later on in the pros geared me to become a good official because I felt the game. I knew. I sat on the end of the bench and watched a lot uh, of guys. I and know. I could I see know. them throwing snow. Knuckles, do you remember the last game we played against each other in 1980? Montreal. Yeah, in Quebec. In Quebec. And we yeah. were beating you that guys. That was before I was born. That was before mm-hmm. I was born. <laughs> and, and, and I kept going by your bench, and you, you were playing for that coach. He had the one eye. and I. <laughs> Claude Ruel. I just kept yelling, put, put an island out here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so at the end of the game, there was six seconds left, and there was part of that Eagleson tragedy, you know, travesty. Yeah. Um, and you didn't get a game played unless you touched the ice. Yeah. So Demers, six seconds to go, comes down the bench, and Quebec had the option on me for the next year for big money, 70 grand U.S. And long story short, Demers comes down the bench with six seconds to go. We're winning three to one. And he said, hey, Cat, that was my nickname, Mother Shah, the Cat. Get out, Stu get out Cat. there. Yeah, get, get, get a game in for your for your pension. You, you hadn't played all game. I, I looked I at remember. Demers. I know, and I looked at him and I said, I'd love to get out there, Jacques, but I don't have my skates on. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the horn went. I just walked into the dressing room. It's funny because <laughs> Tim and amazing. I – we're talking before, and he said, "Did you guys ever fight?" And I said, "I played one game against Stewie, and we were t- we talked in the warm up a little bit. You know, we're gonna go, blah blah blah." And then you didn't play the game. You didn't get on the ice. And Not at all. I said he never got on the ice. Otherwise, we surely probably would have fought. Because Tim was asking me, "Did you ever fight anybody you know?" And no. I said, "Not really. I didn't know any of the guys I fought. They're all Canadians. I never knew who the hell they were." So the interesting yeah, yeah. thing is I anybody that I fought necessarily wasn't someone that I disliked. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of times we it goes without a, saying. It was just us doing our jobs. And and necessarily for Chris and for me and and people don't but if I'm gonna list the names, we were minority. Oh yeah. And huge. And, and I'm gonna tell you, who who did Boston have? Well, they had O'Reilly, Wensink, Jonathan, Seacord. Yeah, yeah, all the Canadian guys. But yeah. they played, and they all scored 20 goals, and Cherry yeah. used them a lot. And then, but you go down the list, Kurt Walker in Toronto, Boston kid, tough guy. Uh, Paul Holmgren, Philadelphia, Jack Carlson in Minnesota, uh, Hartford, uh, and Dave Hansen in Detroit, and myself, and Nicky Fatiu in New York. And, you know, you look at it, the good majority of the tough guys were – were American kids and a lot of them from Boston. And in fact, my first game after playing against the Bruins, and then we went to Hartford, I didn't even get a shift my second game. I, I We're playing Hartford the next night. I didn't even get a shift. And then we get on the plane and we go to Quebec and we get off the plane and the guys there with the customs, uh, Tardif, uh, Lacroix, Dion, Stewart. I thought all the Nordiques were French. I said, not the tough ones. They had to go to Quebec. They had to go to Boston for tough guys. Well, I want to get to the Boston game because that is like, you know, as a player, that was your night. You played 21 games in the NHL, but that was your night as a player. You fought three times. Was it O'Reilly twice? That was and- your first game, right? Your yeah. first. Oh, wow. First real NHL game. I oh. played in a, yeah. a, a boatload of exhibition games for different teams. And, so uh, was it O'Reilly twice? And- Cashman in the warm-up. Cashman in the warm-up. Yeah. And then O'Reilly twice. Jonathan. 
Jonathan and, 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 and then Secord. And Secord. I, I thought I was going to fight Winston because I didn't know who the hell Secord was. But, you know, uh, it didn't matter to me. And I wasn't going down. And yeah. everybody says, "Oh, the John, you 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 lost every fight." Nah, I don't think so. Yeah, I, it wasn't a question of winning and losing; it was a question of letting them know you want to take a run at Fatoric. You got to go through me. Were you ever nervous before no. fights? Never. Huh? Preparation is the key to victory. Douglas MacArthur said that. I wrote my college thesis about MacArthur in Japan, and the whole aspect of confidence comes from repeated physical abilities to do what you need to do so if you need to get stronger hitting the bag you hit the bag if you hit the speed bag or you hit uh you get on the weights or you're shooting pucks or you're skating left to right or right to left or backs and forwards you you just get to that level and when you're a professional which is what i always wanted to be i was never going to not Give you a hundred percent. So you never, you, come on, you, you never have butterflies still before the yeah, game. You must. Die. Come on. The difference between having anxiety or nervousness is no different than Yul Brenner, who did three thousand performances of the King and I before his last performance, sitting there going over his lines. You, 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 as a pro and as a person of pride, which is what gets you here. You, you, you'd never want to drop the torch, and you never want to bag it or you know call in sick and i just i just wouldn't just the way i was brought up i would never do that so the fact of the matter is i may have had anxiety but i was more you could walk through your fear you could get through your fear i I was more afraid of being afraid than i was in going out and facing anybody you know going into philadelphia Mac Largy, Paddock, Wilson. I mean, I, I fought them all. And I never said no. And in fact, Clark Gilly said to me years later when he saw me in Florida, and he was retired, but I was reffing. He said to me, how come you and I never fought? I said, well, the way you played, you played with dignity and you played with, with toughness and it was honest. I said, you never did anything to piss me off. I said, but if you had done something, I would have been in your face. I said, but also, I've seen you fight, and I didn't want to get killed. And and Gilly said to me, I've seen you too. And he said, I would have had to kill you nine times because you kept getting up. <laughs> yeah, you keep coming. And I get that, right? Uh, well, there's no later question. on when I was a referee and I was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they told me I had six months to live, and I went through the surgery and the chemo and all that. That's why I say to people, I, I, I made the NHL three times. Player referee, cancer survivor, and I would never quit because there are too many people that depend on me, and I have the opportunity, even with my limited skills or my reputation or whatever it is, I have the chance to do a lot of things, and among them is raise a nice family and have a lot of great friends. How many other guys get invited to be on this show? Yeah, you, well, you... Um, retire from hockey, 82, 83. You walk away from the game. A lot of guys have a tough time transitioning, right, Paul? You know, I, did, I did. Quite yeah. a few guys do. It's difficult. Did you rode those buses to all those yeah. games across Canada. Yeah, no shit. But when you retired, did you set your sights on refereeing right away, or how did that come about? 
Well, I, I was married at the time, and she was tired of moving, and she wanted to have a family, and it turned out I was injured and couldn't have kids of my own. I ended up having to have a couple of operations so I could have them, but that came, those came later. Those fellows came later, my two boys. In fact, in, you might see the, the sign. That's my youngest guy. He played yeah. in Stansted in Quebec yeah. and two years. And I know that. School. And <clears throat> I think I, I had a chance to go to Buffalo. Scotty was going to sign me Bowman and, and, and the uh, GM, um, in Chicago, wanted to sign me uh, Magnuson, and I should have gone with Chicago, uh, but it turned out that my wife talked me out of signing with Buffalo. I was at training camp, and two days after I was at training camp and decided to leave and go home, uh, Larry Playfair, who was their tough guy, put his hand through a pinball machine and was out for most of the year. Ooh, big and Larry, we had him I, on. We yeah. had Larry on. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have, I would have been there the whole year. But, you know, all things happen. I came home. I was a police officer. I, I was uh, doing a radio show. Uh, Where were night. you a cop? Were you down the Cape? In Yarmouth, yeah. Yarmouth, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. And just a patrolman that, did, you know, did my job. I was a reserve officer. They used me just like sitting on the end of the bench, fourth line guy. I mean, they used me and they used me. But I worked a lot. And to the point that the FBI invited me to become an FBI agent and at the same time and in the same week I got a letter from Scotty Morrison offering me an opportunity to referee in the in the uh, NHL so it, it's it, it's all a, a series of happenstances and, and sometimes a miscue but all of it worked out because I I found the niche that I was supposed to be in and everything yeah. that happened up to 1983. Prepared you for it. Yeah, but it's ironic. John McCauley threw me out of an exhibition game in Madison Square Garden against the Flyers. And later on in Binghamton, he, he, he went, after he had been injured and was working his way back up to the to the National League, he had, he had gotten punched in in the eye and actually lost his sight. But I did Was that I, in a fight, like a, no, no, during a game? A, he was in a bar, a bar oh, okay. across from Madison Square Garden. Some fan sucker punched him. Oh, that's and sucks. yeah, I mean it was kind of too bad. And but he became a supervisor, and then he became the director of officiating. Big and mentor of yours, right, John McCauley? Well, that night in Binghamton, and I got thrown out the second game he ever ref when I played. Um, he said to me, come see me after the game. And I, I went over to see him. He says, you should referee when you're done. He says, you've got the bloodlines, you know, your grandfather, your father, your brother, da-da-da. So in 83, the, the officials here in Massachusetts, particularly on Cape Cod where I was living, um, they told me uh, that I shouldn't be refing in Massachusetts and I, or on the Cape. And I said, why not? They said, your game is, you're different. You, you you skate, you you know you're you've got a whole different attitude, and the way you do it isn't geared for high school and college hockey. You should be in the pros. So I I called Scotty Morrison, and they gave me a tryout, and I went to Bruce Hood School, and when I had the opportunity, uh, I became a trainee. I worked 157 games. I worked 37 games in 39 nights in five different leagues. I worked in the I. Then I went to the Western League. That's crazy. To the OHL, the Quebec Major Junior, the American League, and college hockey. 
So and, and prep school hockey. So I was working a lot of leagues with. And, I guess the reports are pretty good. So all and, those leagues uh, certainly paid off. You got a, um, a taste of, I guess, different styles of hockey too. What? Wh- when does the big move come to the NHL? How'd that come about in your first NHL game? So I would oftentimes, because of McCall, he would say to me, watch and learn. And he would say to me, you know, you're off tomorrow night. There's a game in Boston or you're off tomorrow you're on the road there's a game in calgary or in montreal or wherever and bring your equipment and sit there and watch and sit with a supervisor and i sat with ashley john ashley and frank advari and scotty and and i i had great teachers and my dad he also would chime in because he knew a little bit about officiating too (laughs) a little (laughs) yeah so um i was sitting in boston it was March 26th, 1986. I had been working the American League. I was doing the finals in the American League. and it's But it's March, and in the Adams division, Montreal was playing Boston for a first or second place, home ice. And Jean Perron was the coach, and they weren't doing too well. Serge Savard was in the building. Dave we, won, ref- we won the cup that year. That's it's unbelievable. That's part of the story. Yeah. So March 26th. Montreal's at Boston, games on national television. Uh, Sam Rosen was doing the game with John Davidson and for ESPN. And I'm in the press box eating popcorn with Macaulay, and he's pointing out stuff to me. And Watch <laughs> out for that number 30. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Matt Naslin took Newell into the boards, the old Boston Garden, and broke his ribs on the stanchion next to the bench. Way to go, Matt. Hasseltine and Stickle were on the ice, and Stickle looked up at, at at McCauley, and he shook his head no, and then he went, pointed to his ribs and went, I thought. McCauley literally touched my hand. Go get dressed. I had never worked in the National League, and I went downstairs. And big I moment. Dressed. This is a big moment. What Was that the first period, second period? Second Stu? period. Second yeah. period. Early in, like three, four minutes in. And if Newell's ribs weren't broken when I slammed the door open again, <laughs> you broke them again. I broke them for sure. But I went out and I did a great job for the first 30 seconds. And then I disallowed the Bruins, what turned out would have been the Bruins' winning goal. The game ended up 2 2. And Montreal ended up a point ahead. And they went on and won the Stanley Cup. And Serge Savard later on, who was a great guy, I always enjoyed him. Uh, he said to me, you know, if we hadn't tied that night and gone on from there, he said Perron would have been coaching his last game. I wish we lost. <laughs> well, you guys won the Stanley Cup. Well, we went, I was, was, was going to ask. Go, yeah, I think go. this is such a cool question because you can't ask. There's not many people you can ask this. As a player, your first NHL game, and as a ref, your first NHL game, did you have similar feelings? Was did one mean more than the other? No, because Good question, I, Tim. I tell people all the time that hockey to me is like going to a, a restaurant and getting a pizza. You get one slice, which is, you know, being a fan, and you get another slice as a player, and you get another slice as a coach. And I've done all that, and then I started officiating. And that's, the, the, to me, all the other slices added up to make me 
able to be who I was. And that was the most important piece of advice that I got from all those Hall of Fame people, you know, John Ashley and, and, and Scotty and Frank and Vary and all them. Be yourself. Don't be Kerry Fraser. Don't be Billy McCreary. You be Paul Stewart. Because the players will respect well, you. Well, you. you were Paul Stewart. And it, <laughs> it, I want to get to this. now, And yeah. I loved it. Because you were different than the average official. And you were a Paul Stewart. Now, um, when you officiated the game, one, did you officiate different than other guys uh, when it came to the tough guys? Because... I had, you know, more, you I had played more, that role. You, you played that role. I, you know, and it's funny because uh, uh, Glenn Healy, a goaltender, sat a lot on the Toronto bench. And I used to tell him, you and I are the only friends that we have. We're back and forth because nobody talks to us. And it's, it's interesting because uh, I just think that the aspect of, of everything that made me who I was and I was urged on to to use that by by Scotty and Macaulay and those fellows. D don't forget where you came from. And I was from a little town in, uh, in part of Boston, tough town. Uh, Wahlburgers are from there. Uh, the uh, town of Dorchester. And I mean, I'd fight on the way home for lunch, and I'd fight on the way home after school. And you had to be tough, and you couldn't. You could, so, but. You, you also have to, my dad would say this to me, feel the game. Yeah. And if they're playing for you, let them play. And you've got to be able to read people. And having been a police officer and having had a gun and, and life and death situations, uh, you know, and I've saved, I did save some lives and I took it seriously. But I wanted to do everything in life. I wanted to try everything and do everything. And one of the things that I, once I got to the NHL, and and sadly, after John McCauley died, I not only had to go back to fighting again, I had to go back and and just literally will myself to survive because the management that took over after John McCauley hated me. Yeah, you know, well, and listen. I, I went from <laughs> being one of the top. I, went, I worked the Canada Cup in 87 finals. Did pretty well. And I proved I could referee. And you know what? The, the guys that took over after Macaulay and Scotty left, they hated me. I well, listen. I've I, you don't always have to like your boss, but you supposedly have to respect them. And I had a hard time respecting a boss who didn't respect me. Okay, so that, I, I, I think that theory's out the window. But well, I want to. The disrespect that, happened, and it manifested itself by doing who, things. Who like, took over for Macaulay? Uh, Brian Lewis. Brian Lewis. Okay, I get it. Now, I understand what you're talking about. Now, um, Stewie, the, the, back to the original names. question. Well, that's okay. Back to the original question. Did you have that empathy, you said, for guys who played the game like you? Like, I felt you were a fair official. Um, I felt that because um, you played the game, you had a better feel for the game than most of those officials did. Listen, if – you're playing on a uh, on a team, and a guy goes into the corner and takes Guy Lafour up high, hard into the boards. Well, that's your that's your that's your money. That's your bread and butter guy. And if you want to take a run of Guy Lafour, 
you're going to have to take a run at me. And when I played, if you were going to run a Fatoric, you were going to run at me. But the one thing that I never liked and where I was tough on tough guys was if they cheap shot at somebody or backstabbed or they stuck them. I didn't like that. And because I never, but my recipe for refereeing was given to me by Frank Advari. He said to me one night in Springfield, banged into my chest. He says, if you haven't got the balls to call penalties in the American League, how are you going to do it in Madison Square Garden? I said, you know, what do you want? He said to me, if you, if you're refereeing and you see a play and it would bother you and you want to fight the guy, that's a penalty. If you see a guy do it to another guy and, you're, and it was your teammate and you'd want to jump the boards, that's a penalty. He, he said, and if you're sitting on the end of the bench and one of your teammates does something ridiculous, stupid, and you go like this, that's a penalty. He said, you don't have to read the book, get through it, but feel the game. And listen, sitting on the end of the bench for 60 minutes and taking a paycheck and not getting to play, and you see other guys that have Sucks. no guts, it's terrible. Sucks. And I, I just had the whole dedication to I'm going to prove that I, can, I should be here. And, you know, it was about respect because I didn't get to play a lot in college, and I played in prep school. We played 15, 20 games. That was it. Yeah. An outdoor rink. And if it was sunny, we didn't play, you know, because the ice would melt. But I just, I just, my love of the game and my dedication, but more so the belief I had in myself that I earned by lifting those weights and hitting those bags and running those miles and, and riding the bike and, and, and going into Johnstown and facing all those guys and Philadelphia. Well, why, why did they hate you? And and how did you officiate differently than the other guys? Explain that to me. Why did they hate you, and how did you officiate differently? Well, they hated me because I was American, and it's Off still a fact. It's still a fact. The first like, American. You were the first American, right? To play in the NHL and then referee. Yeah, but and but, the, the the reason that they didn't like me was because the same reason as the as the situation now with officiating in the NHL, uh, it's ninety five percent Canadian, and I have nothing against Canadians. My grandmother was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia. My aunt was a nun in in uh, Sisters of Charity in Montreal, uh, and my grandfather played for Montreal Royals in baseball, and he refereed in the National League for a long time. I get it. So yeah, so, yeah, I get it. You got nothing against Canadians. I get it. And I certainly had a few Canadian friends, uh, you know, that weren't hard on the eyes. And trust me, I, I, I used to go to Nova Scotia every summer for almost a month playing golf and fishing. And So they this. hated you because you're American. You like Canadians. How did you officiate differently? And how did you get through all that shit and deal with that? Throughout your career, did it ever turn for you? I remember everything that my dad told me and everything that John McCauley told me. And and, and basically, it didn't matter who was running the show, because once I went on the ice and I had those orange things on, I ran the show. And I was in charge. And you know what? I was a good official. And I could, and all of a sudden, teams, even though the management never got let me go to the finals, and I never worked the finals in the Stanley Sucks. Cup. That but, sucks. You know, and that was a joke. And one, one, one year in, in uh, 95, um, 
I, I, I only missed it like a week or so. I had a, a, a hamstring tear. And when the playoffs came around, I had wanted to work the last game at Boston Garden. And my boss said to me, I have more senior and more worthy officials than you. My, in 1928, my grandfather refereed 10 of the 20 games in Boston Garden that the Bruins played. Uh, so it was, yeah, it, come me, on. It was, it was a fitting thing for me to be there. And, and he, he wanted to give it to somebody else. And I went to Bettman and I went to Burke and I went to Harry Sinan and I got to the game and that, that spring when I didn't get a playoff game, I got sent home. You he realized me, it was because no, of that. Me, no, he said to me, no. point blank. My boss said to me, point blank. Oh, what do you care? You, you got to work the last game of Boston Garden. So was, he, there, was there any coaches you that you hated reffing against? They were just always on you? No. I, I, in 20 years of refereeing at every level, I only called ever four bench minors against a coach, two to Ron Wilson, who I played with in the summers and knew, and knew his family. And the other was Fatorik, who was – I lived with him in Quebec, and he and I were teammates. And the other guy was uh, Brian uh, Murray, who had a lisp, and he kept saying, Paul, then, and I, I was wiping spit off my face in Winnipeg. <laughs> and I never threw a coach out. I, I would, Keenan said to me one night, you're, you're a no good cocksucker. I said, I'll have you know I'm a great cocksucker. I asked Brett Hall. <laughs> but it, 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 it was never personal for me. And, you know, coaches have to do what they have to do. And I understood because my, I had coached myself a couple of years and my, my, my brother had coached and my grandfather and my dad. And I know the passion and the pain that they go through. And I understand that having been on teams in the NHL and WHA and in the minors, you get guys that don't show up some night and it's not the coach's fault. So if you have an issue with a coach, you know, you look him in the eye and you give him his respect and he gives you, and you know, and if they didn't respect me, I would say, listen, here's the deal. I'll be here at the end of this game. Where will you be? So, I'll just, I'll so Stewie, Stewie, I know, like, listen, I've heard it, you know, from different guys over the course. Oh, he thinks he's the show out there. He's, you know, the players of the show, not the referee. Uh, did you hear that a lot, or did you get that a lot? That oh, he thinks he's the show. And, and how did you deal with that? You know, a lot of people throw a lot of mud, and what sticks to the wall sticks if yeah. it's meant to. In the situation, and occasionally I would say, like Milbury said to me one night, I called two penalty shots against his team. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> two penalty shots. That I, did night. In, I did it in the minors in Hershey. I called two how penalty shots. How far apart were they? Like how far? No, on, on the same play. On the same oh. play. How do you fucking do that? Do what happened? That? So we're in Hershey. Kevin McCarthy's playing defense for Hershey, and uh, I'm refereeing. And uh, the player goes across the red line, and Kevin turns and hooks him. And, you know, all the criteria are met, five criteria are met. And the puck skitters away. And the player that's on the on the attack that got fouled, he slides into the goalie, and the goalie goes up in the air, and the and the player goes up in the air, and the, the net's empty, and, the, and they, they had those metal pins. They didn't have these plastic pegs. And the puck's right in the crease. And just as 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 uh, 
an opposing player is going to come in and snap it into the net. Kevin McCarthy slid into the net. He put his hand on the puck and threw it over the glass. So you got a you got a penalty shot for the hook. And then why did the play stop? The place you have to always go through logic, and the play stopped because the player covered the puck in the, in crease, the crease with his hand. That's a penalty shot. So, so did they take the shot. two penalty shots? They yeah, took yeah. them. They took them both. <laughs> yeah. Now, and the GM of Hershey, who's a Hall of Fame guy, he 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 phones down and he's he actually came down to see me after the game, but he's, I've never seen that before. And I said to him. Well, you won't be able to say that tomorrow. Boom. <laughs> so, did now did you get shit after the game, or did they say that's that was legitimate? That's the call, or you should have just called one. Well, it was what an was, area. It was an area in the rule book that really wasn't covered because it had never happened. And you know, John McCauley, when I first started to referee, said to me, "Always remember." When you're reading the book, ask yourself, why was this rule written? You know, hooking and holding, you know, butt ending. You know, it's pretty easy to figure that out. But when you get to situations where you have, uh, you know, the net coming off and the puck going in or or the guy bends the net forward and the guy's shooting the puck, you know, all the odd situations. So anytime a referee, and I I assign games now for, for different leagues, when they when they balk at work and say referee in one night and line in the next or something, I tell them it's all about the experience. And everything that can ever happen is going to happen again tomorrow. So gain the experience, put it in your in your toolbox, and take it with you every game so that you can use your logic. But John McCauley said to me, "There's always a reason why the rule is written, and in the situation that you're in." You have to take and address each foul as they come. And where does it say in the book that you can't have two penalty shots on the play, same play? Doesn't. Chris, so, I want to remind you, we were talking before, like about your cross-checking. I thought that I, I forgot the exact question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'm going to get to that um, for sure. But thank you for the reminder. Uh, so you call the two penalty shots. I Stewie. did it in New York, and Milbury came down and kicked the door. All pissed off. And he, you know, he used the famous, so you always want to be the show. And I turned, I said to him, well, between you and me, I said, watching your power play, there wasn't much of a show out there besides me. (laughs) And then he said to me, I ought to kick your ass. And I looked at the two linesmen and I said to them, you can leave. I said, you can shut the door. I said, whoever leaves first wins. And he just left. He just looked at me because, uh, if I'm going down, he's yeah, coming I, with you. Yeah, he, there, there's <laughs> going to be a lot of stuff that they're going to have to scoop up off the street. <laughs> so um, let's get into um, a couple things. I, a couple things I want to talk about the way the game is being refereed today. No red line, wide open, blah, blah, blah. The hooking, they, they clamp down on hooking, right? Yep, yep. And they got that out of the game. Um, one thing I see today, and it happens every shift, is cross-checking. And it's called sometimes, and then other times it's not. What is the difference there? Why, why one time a guy cross-checks a guy and he goes down in front of the net, and maybe a guy gets cross-checked and he doesn't go down, and it's not a penalty? What, what's the deal? Well, 
my philosophy was a little different than say the other guys today. First of all, today they're they're I'm not a fan of their positioning. Uh, they they there's too much reliance upon batteries and wires and television cameras and things like right. that. And I, I I think that the advice that I got years ago was get to the net. The games are won and lost in the corners for for the players, but for the referee, the money's at the net. And my first game in the NHL, as I said, um, 30 seconds, I was great. And then Courtnall stole the puck and shot it. Well, no, Casper stole the puck and shot it at Patrick Waugh. And he, he, he grabbed it like this, and I thought he had it. And Courtnall was bombing down the slot. I blew the whistle, and it turned out the puck was between his feet and was sitting right on the goal line. But I didn't see it. So the legit yeah. thing is when you lose sight of the puck, you make the you, you blow the whistle. So over the course of time, you, you want to feel out these situations and feel out the game. And I just think that there's too much reliance upon. But how play. about the cross-checking itself? Well, here's the Fuck thing. Fuck the video you know, and all that. The, the, the cross-checking. Yeah. I saw one the other night, Boston, uh, I guess it was last night where the where the kid cross checked the guy in the back, uh, the Swedish defenseman. The, the situation is that we have an influx of European players, yeah, and they don't body check like we do, and they tend to use their stick more. Now I had a philosophy about it, which was anything below the numbers is okay. Small of the back, no problem. As long as you're not rolfing the guy, but you can, and and if you take your hand, just your hand, and, and and you bang them between the shoulder blades and aggravate them, but you're not trying to you're not trying to take their heads off or cut them in half, and I think that part of it is that going back to youth hockey, we don't allow these guys to body check, and as a result, they don't know how to cover in front of the net. Doug Harvey taught me, and I. I learned a lot when I was at Rangers training camp, and Doug Harvey was the was the was the assistant Fergie brought in, and he 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 taught me things. You know, hit him below the numbers, below the numbers in the back or or the arm, and and you don't have to kill him. You just have to aggravate him and get him to move. And that's so what that you're that, to do. that seems to be left up to the official, the interpretation of it, because you see it every shift. Sometimes they call it, sometimes they don't. What's what what's the criteria? Well, the, the aspect is always, I think, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So the the teams that have been, say, subjected to an, an exorbitant amount of cross-checking, they're going to be calling the office, you know, and and basically, you know, the, everything squeezes downhill, right? And so then the referees and the linesmen get the, get the doctrine later on. And, you know, that's... That's uh, the director of hockey operations, uh, Colin Campbell's situation yeah. where he and Wacom make the decisions on how the game's going to be called. But go back to what my recipe was. If they did it to me and I'd be pissed off, that's yeah. a penalty. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of simple. And I've been on the receiving end of cross-checks. I had a guy cross-check me in college in practice. And... Uh, he put me in the hospital for two weeks in traction with a cracked cervical vertebrae. When I got out of the hospital and I was able to clear to go back and practice, I said to him, can I ask you, what'd you do that for? He goes, you know, screw you. I'm not here to be friends. And I turned, I said, okay, wrong answer. Yeah. I hit him 
in a scrimmage that afternoon with a body check so clean and so hard. And I was a big kid. A lot of people don't realize. You know, 6'1", 210, and strong. Yeah. And uh, he separated both shoulders and broke his sternum. <laughs> and every time it rains, I hope he enjoys himself. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a, that was a good question, Nux. Get even, like, bitch. It's a good question because, like, hooking, you can't – it's not like you can hook in the shin pads and, you know, like you just can't hook at all. Is that ever going to be like with cross-checking? You just can't even cross-check ever? It's, that's impossible, probably. Well, as I say, that, you know, there's a – it's just like when you go into a restaurant and – the three of us are there and we all order the soup and, uh, and, and you say, boy, uh, Tim, it's, it's, this is terrific soup. And Chris says, uh, mine's not so hot. And, and I say, uh, mine's too salty. You know, everybody has yeah. their own attitude yeah, yeah. And, and their own opinion. Uh, but I, I go, I go back to this and I had this conversation when I was refereeing, which, you know, guys like Eiserman and Neely and, you know, they they tried to play up who they were and all that. And they'd like, they'd, inevitably they'd say to me, if you were still playing, I'd kick your ass. And you know, I'd, I'd not me, Stewie, <laughs> not me. And you know, I, I love say, Stewie. I'd say to them, if I was still playing, you'd be the first on my hit parade. Uh, <laughs> like I, so the hit parade, let's talk about that. How about the NHL now? And the, they, they, they're really trying to get the fight. Now you notice the cameras when there's a fight, they want, they don't, you know, they, Really don't want to show it, but what you think it's a mistake taking fighting out of the game, or really coming down on it like they have? I don't think necessarily it's it's something that can be legislated. I think that the game is. Excuse me. One Whoa. Second. Ooh, round that's three. <laughs> yeah, that's my wife. Uh, so smart. I don't I don't think necessarily you can legislate. The, that aspect out of the game. But again, I go back to the couple of points that have changed the landscape of the game. First of all, you have many more Americans playing that came from college and they don't fight in college. He, although George Paris is a tough kid, he played at Princeton. And, and then um, how many Europeans do we have? They don't fight in Europe. So, and, and then you have, you know, that, Boston Legal, the show where where uh, Rebecca De Mornay is the attorney, and she's talking to the other guy, and they're talking about suspending a player for you know the year because he cross-checked a guy, and it's a it's a it's an interesting show because it deals with hockey and it deals with what happened to the kid from Colorado when he got jumped. Yeah, and, uh, you, you just, in Vancouver. Yeah, you just look uh -huh. at. You just look at the different aspects, and let me put it this way to you. Uh, I never spent much time trying to intimidate people. I only spent time dealing with what they brought to my t table. You want to take a run at Jamie Hislop, you're, you're going to see me. Right. And that's all there is to it. And it was cut and dry and simple as can be, and I did my thing, and I got a yeah. nice car and, yeah. you know, I had a nice apartment and I made a, I made a living. But more importantly, I spent my life in the place that I wanted to be. Yeah, you have. There's no question about it. Uh, Stu? I was in a bar not too long ago. Yeah. And a guy walked up. He said to me, hey, are you Paul Stewart? I said, yeah. He says, I remember you. You were a horseshit player. I said, yeah, thank you very much. 
I said, but I made pretty good money. And I said, and I was a pro. And he goes, you had two goals in the NHL, 21 games. I said, yeah, one game would have been enough. Yeah. But he said to me, well, I, 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 I go to hockey. And I love hockey. And oh, yeah. he says, I watch you referee, and you are a worse you referee. You I said to him, Yeah, yeah. So I, I said to him, you know, it might be more, more uh, suggested for you to go over and have a beer and put it on my tab. I said, because you're way off base, and I don't fight to fight anymore. If I'm going to fight you, I'm going to kill you. Uh-huh. That's, I, That's I it. didn't come in here to fight. But yeah. if you want to fight me, I'm not going to fight to fight you. I'm going to fight to kill you. Yeah. And I mean it. And, you know, we're talking about a family. My brother got stabbed on New Year's Eve, uh, Christmas Eve in 1962 because a kid in Dorchester Park wanted his hockey stick. So, you know, you just look at this and you just say, and I was in Philly and had some, you know, on and off the ice, some tough times. But the most important thing is that you're getting the respect that your efforts have earned you. And in my situation, uh, you know, they can say whatever they want. So I said to the fellow, can I borrow your phone? He goes, why? I said, well, I'm in five Hall of Fames. I just want to maybe call them all and tell them they made a mistake. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Stewie, referees, we hear it all the time. Oh, that's a makeup call. That's a makeup call. Do you ever do a makeup call? No. Listen, the, the, the toughest thing to gain, whether it's a coach, a referee, or a player, is respect. And when you're in the stands watching the game, as I was in Russia, and I'm sitting with Trechak and Yakushev and Fatisov, and one of the referees does something badly, and they all turn and look at me. I'm getting the respect that I earned. And when I'm out on the ice in Montreal, in Montreal, and they always said, oh, Montreal, they get the hometown calls, and they get, they, you know what? I had respect from Serge Savard. And the last thing in the world I would want to do is lose that respect. And that would mean I compromised my ethics and my, and my credibility by doing something stupid like pussying out and making a makeup call. I did a game one night, and you you were probably playing, where Washington was playing the Canadians in Montreal, and it was 0-0. And Montreal has the puck. Pete Peters is in the net for, for the Caps, and he's on the right post, and he goes to slide across, and um, Carbonell is in the crease. And, and the, the Czech defenseman, the big kid, is out at the point. He, Langway passed it across to him, and not, or not, not Langway, but uh, the other defenseman passed it across to, to that Svoboda? kid. Yes, Peter Svoboda. And Svoboda shoots the puck. But in the meantime, Carbono's in the crease, so Peters goes to slide across, and he can't go. And Carbono jumps straight up in the air, and the puck goes in. And it was about 30 seconds left in the third period. This will give Montreal one nothing, And the place goes nuts. And Claude Mouton, and, you know. Yeah. And I go over and no goal. Crease interference. So now we go in overtime. The phone rings. 
Mouton, the announcer, you know, Barry Arper, and his kid was a goalie in the Rangers training camp. Hockey's very incestuous. We, we all know each other. He, I, I, I'm standing by the penalty box with Ron Asseltine, the linesman, and I said to Mouton, who's that? He goes, he wants to speak to you. I said, who's that? He goes, Serge. So I look up across the ice, and there's Serge in his box. So oh, yeah. I take the phone. Hasseltine is so he's madder than hell that I would actually do this. Because you, you can't talk to him. I said, nobody knows I'm talking to him. They think I, I, I could be ordering a pizza. So I said to Serge, uh, am I, are you, are you going to order me a pizza? Is that what you're doing? He goes, how come you disallowed a goal? Garbano, he jumped into air. He's not in decrease. I said, Serge, you've been around a long time. You're on the rules committee. The crease goes from the ice to the crossbar four feet i said he impeded the goalie he didn't make contact but he psychologically didn't allow him physically to play his position no goal i said no i'll take a cheese pizza thank you oh. Oh. <laughs> the game ends up five five uh, five minutes uh, ends up zero zero whatever and i go in the dressing room and raymond the old guys in quebec he's sitting by the door he was there when my grandfather was there got the ciggy in the vault the ball. <laughs> the boss want to see you. I said, who's the boss? He says, just a second. He opens the door. There's Serge standing there with a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's big so, Serge. No, but you, you, to me, the ultimate sin isn't making a mistake. It's compounding it or trying to do something to pull you out. They give you the job to be a judge, be the judge. They give you a sweater, the symbolism of it, black and white. It's yes or no. Did you ever work the two referee system? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you did. Here's the first guy with friends. Here's what I think, here's what I think. I, I don't like it because honestly, I feel sometimes one guy, say one guy makes two, three calls, the other guy doesn't. He feels like he's gotta fucking be part of the game too. Like one guy's making all the calls. Yeah, that was never that never mind. happens. No, well, but does that happen? Did no, you it, it, it did you ever no, felt that happen? Just say no, you made three the, calls, and the then first, the other guy wants to get involved. No, no. The first game that we did the two, and it used to be when my grandfather was refereeing in the National League. It was two referees and one linesman. And then the war happened, and they had local linesmen and one referee, and they had the red line. Put the red line in. That's when the red line came in, and they had icing that came in and all these different rules. I always remember what Macaulay said. What was the purpose of the rule? So in Madison Square Garden, Toronto's playing Rangers, and Fraser and I are in the Penta, the Hotel Pennsylvania, across the street the morning of the game, and we're going to have two referees and two linesmen. And the linesmen were DePuzo and Kevin Collins. I love Dapa. So Fr Fraser and I sat in the room, and we said – you know, no one told us how to do it. I said, well, this is no different than when we did two referees when we were working amateur hockey. You know, the deep referee dropped the puck and the high referee would watch interference and, you know, you'd go one end and the other and you'd, you'd switch sides and do things like that. I said, but the only difference is here in the National League, we don't have to worry about icings, offsides, uh, puck out of the rink, or th things like that. And Fraser and I did pretty well. He, there were 13 penalties called in the game. He reported to the penalty box 10 times. I reported three times. So the league, because they were instituting this new system, had a press conference, and the four of us are there. And 
the press said to me, uh, you called three penalties and Kerry called 10. You know, Sounds like you, Kerry. No, but he, <laughs> no, but he, I said, well, I'm not too sure that you fellas aren't watching the same thing that we're watching. I said, because I see a play and it's a trip and I look to him to see if he's got it and his hands up. I said, this is in the NFL where five guys throw the flag and then four guys pick it up. I said, if he's got the call, that's what counts. I said, so who reports? It doesn't matter. So I said, and nowhere in the book does it say I've lost jurisdiction because I'm on one side of the rink and he's on the other or one end or the other. I said, but I will tell you that tonight is an experience that I've never had in hockey. I said, before the game, I had one of the most bitter fights with one of my officiating crew, and I'd prefer never to have it happen again. And all the press is like, and I said, yeah, have you guys ever tried to get to a mirror with the gel before the game with Kerry Fraser in the room? <laughs> <laughs> we had Kerry on, Tim and He's I. He's a good fellow. I, uh, a lot of people are jealous of him, and they don't like him. I was um, going to say, as a player, though, like, you'd hear it all the time. If we had, like, four penalties, the coach would always be like, they owe us one. Like, right? Like, we're going to get a power play here. And, most, and, most of and, like, those guys. Were, but as a rep, guys, are you – no, like, most of those coaches never went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and they never had Bill Stewart as the father and grandfather. And guess what? Most of them wouldn't know which end of the whistle to blow. So you got to remember, and I dealt with them all. You know, Pat Quinn, and uh, Pat Quinn. One night, I'm I'm in Montreal doing the game, and it's a Wednesday night, and. I'm watching, you know, I'm doing the game, and in between periods, they have nice room and captain's chairs, and we're clicking and watching Toronto. Toronto's on the other hockey night. And uh, Driscoll, the linesman, didn't do something that Quinn agreed or disagreed with, and he took the gum out of his mouth and fired it at, at Driscoll and hit him off the head. Ooh, and good he got, shot. He got fined. So I, I'm going from... Montreal Wednesday, Thursday, I'm traveling to Toronto. Friday night, I'm in Buffalo, and Saturday, I'm in Toronto. So, you know, I take the train, and I get down, and a buddy of mine, we drive down to Buffalo, and now I'm going to the game in at the gardens, and Ricky Lee is the assistant coach, and Pat Quinn never stood behind the bench during the anthem. So before the anthem played, I skated over, and I had gone – from the Eaton Center Marriott to to the gardens. And I stopped at Max, it was a little convenience store, and I bought 10 packs of gum. And the anthem is about to start and I skated over. I said to Ricky, where's Pat? He says, oh, he comes out after the song. I said, okay. I said, well, these are for him. And I put the 10 packs of gum on the bench. He says, what's that for? Were you being a wise guy? I said, no, no, just when he gets here, just tell him they're a present for me. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> they play the anthem, and Quinn comes out. You know, he's a big, gruff guy. And, and I, I played against him, and I knew him. And I coached. I refed when he was coaching in, in Maine and Philadelphia. And um, he looks at and he, and he's, he gives it like, ooh, 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 what's this? What's this? So I skate over. I said, Pat, what's the matter? He goes, yeah, I, you referees, are you going to gang up on me? Because I threw a piece of gum at Driscoll. I said, no, no, you paid your fine. I said, I just know tonight that 
I'm probably going to do two or three things that you're not going to like, and I just want to make sure you got enough ammunition. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, and he laughed, and I laughed. It's 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 business. It's not personal. Knox, you you could you threw stuff at people. You threw pucks at people, right? Yeah, I threw pucks. I threw water (laughs) bottles. I threw a lot of shit. Yeah, it was fun. I couldn't afford it. So yeah. Um, At any rate, um, I hope I've given you. Oh, you've given me a ton. I appreciate it, Stewie. Uh, it's been awesome. Um, just uh, quickly, um, if you can, uh, what do you think of the state of the game today? And uh, do you think they tinker with the game too much, the rules and stuff? Uh, what What's the state of the state of hockey today, from well, your point of view? It's it's uh, on the national league level. It's a game that's pricing itself out of the average market for a, a guy with a wife and two kids that maybe yeah. drives a tow truck or something or puts a nut on a bolt or something. Yeah. It, it, I mean, to go to the Boston Garden now, or TD Garden, I mean, you're going to be talking close to a thousand bucks between the tickets. You know, the tickets are 75 to a hundred and that's in the cheap seats way up high. And then a hot dog and a beer is $18. And you know, they're, they're pricing themselves out. The game itself. Forget about all that stuff, but the game itself. Well, I think that the aspect of officiating is that they call penalties that they f- seem to be forced to call, that their judgment isn't as as flexible and as as much as it was when we had personality yeah, for sure. we had our name on our sweaters and we were accountable for it. Now you turn in and when, when I was number 22, people knew that people knew me, but now they don't know these guys. And so yeah. there's the, the, the acceptable acceptance of the accountability is different. And I think that the aspect of the agents now make it part of the reason why there isn't fighting because how about the game itself though Stu? the game itself what do you think of the game itself people say oh it's changed it's It's different it's not (laughs) it's how's it rigged how's it rigged because the goaltenders create an unfair situation for the players because they can't stop the puck up here they just get a bigger glove they get bigger pads they get bigger equipment they they now um have in a situation where Billy Smith would cut your ankles off. Uh, now they go to the replay and it's, it's the electricity isn't quite the same. And yet I don't want to demean the game because for my kids or your kids or any, when little ones even growing up, you know, this is what they have and it's still a good game. And you still, I mean, but when you watch TV now and you listen to Gretzky or Messier on TV, I mean, I enjoy listening to them. I enjoy listening to them because they can add insight. And it's, well, see, I have a different perspective. I I played against Gretzky his first game in the pros, and I played with Messier, and he and I were roommates. So, you know, I have a different feel for for the situation. But I think, like, when you see, like, the Bruins, I happen to see it quite a bit, and you see a kid, like, Pasternak come up, and he's replacing Bergeron. You know, he's doing pretty good for himself. Or McAvoy is doing pretty good for himself. And they have skill. So I think the players are skilled. But I don't necessarily think that they're better than Jean Beliveau was or or 
or Dennis Podfin or Guy Lafleur. I refereed Guy Lafleur's last game in Quebec. And I always think of that as, as, you know, quite a moment in my life. Stewie, what's the first line um, of your um, eulogy? Yeah, your eulogy. What's the first line? If you're going to write a eulogy about Paul Stewart, what is that first line? If he could be here now, he'd be the first guy to buy you guys a beer. I like and, it. And, and like the other it. part of it is? I knew we were going to get more than a line. <laughs> the other part of it is? And I told Father Finn this when, when I was. I know Father Finn. Uh, CYO hockey. Father yeah. Finn, good man. And Father, Father Finn. Cohen, I, when I was told I was dying, uh, and I got the last rites. Um, Unbelievable. We didn't my, even touch on that, which I wanted to. But you have you got to wait for the eulogy, but you did it right here. Thank God. He was one tough guy, and he never quit. That's it. That's it, Stewie. And, and and listen, back to – and, again, there's so much here. Like, we didn't even touch on Russia, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Tim played in Russia. Yeah. You you were director of officials over there, um, you know. You asked me to come back. Yeah. Uh, what are you thinking? You know, well, it's always <laughs> something. One way or the other, I'm always in the middle yeah. of the fire. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you thinking I of doing I, that? I, I Again, told you, I, too too early in the in the in the conversation right now to yep. make any decisions. But yep. um, I told uh, John Kerry when he got off the plane once, and they were going to talk about energy and gas sales in Western Europe and all yeah, these yeah. electric cars. Yeah, we had a we had arranged for a game between. Uh, Putin's Secret Service, they're all occupiers, and, yeah. and the Marines and the people in the, in the U.S. ambassadors spot, and we brought over some New York firefighters and all this. Um, I, I, I said to those fellas, I said, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're American, Canadian, Russian. I said, chasing the puck, we're all the same. Yeah. And I told, I told Kerry, I said, you're going to face off against Putin. I said, I'm going to tell you what to do. Don't blink and don't drop your eyes. No. Look him right in the face. And don't, don't accept the water bottle from him. You want it? <laughs> you want a sip? Sure, Vladimir. No, thank you. So, um, Stewie, I'm going to leave you leave with this right here. Just articulate for me your love for the game of hockey. When I went through the trying times between 1981 and 83 and I was trying to find my niche and I was trying everything. I was a night a night, the night manager of a laundromat. I was working as a cop. I was selling cars. I was cleaning, you know, rugs in a restaurants and things. Yeah. Just trying to survive. Um, and I was maybe challenged a little bit with the bottle and I lost all my pride and a friend of mine, my high school coach, said, you know, I really should talk to someone. So I went and I did talk to someone, a psychologist, and he said to me after the second visit, if I could put you in my car and drive you anywhere in the world or get on a plane and go anywhere in the world, where would you like to go? 
I said, we should go to a hockey game and have a nice dinner and watch the game. And he said, give up the police, give up the cars, give up the radio. He said, go back to hockey because that's your niche. And that's where you've been chosen to have an impact. And that's why when I got sick, I was never afraid of dying. And I'm not, even now. But I think I can still do... Listen, Chris, let's tell them about how the, we went into his children's hospital to see Timmy uh, Gallagher and he had a heart transplant. He was 12. You, Rooney, uh, Joe Mullen, and myself. And how much joy you guys, and I always tell people this about you, you brought all these pictures and you, you went to every room in the hospital. And, and those guys, there's a reason why... They're the top of the shelf. And I took them to Hyannisport, and I had a $900 bar bill. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we played golf, and then yeah. you guys ended up with Ethel. <laughs> yeah, Ethel Kennedy. I'll never yeah. forget. I'll never forget that day, and thank so, you for that. You know what? Story. When you have the chance and you have the ability and you have the tools to do something important, don't forget, it was the game that got us to that spot. No question about it. And Story. so pay the homage to the game. And never. I'm going this weekend to see Joe Augustine. It's won 720 Augie, goals yeah. Yeah, in, in coaching. He's on Rhode Island, right? At, University uh, of Rhode Island. And yeah. you know why I'm going? I'm going because that guy should get some respect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And... You know, you honor people like that. And I'll tell you right now, Ray Bork, Bergeron, uh, Milt Schmidt, Roger Bear, Espo, I mean, all of them, I see them and they, they, they give me a hug. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is, and I said to the fellows at the 50th reunion of the Quebec Nordiques this year in Quebec at the Chateau Frontenac and the WHA and Hall and Nielsen and Hedberg. Wally Weir, Wally I mean, Weir. They're, they're all there. The best. And somebody, so they had us at a table and they had Hull and Hedberg and Nielsen, Tardif and Lacroix. Between them, there's like 5,000 goals. Yeah. And then they had me. And I said to the fellow. 5,001. 5,002. <laughs> two. Two. I said, there, there's a problem here. I said, I'm at the wrong table. He said, no, no. He said, First of all, you're, you are a Nordique. And second of all, he said, nobody can fight like you. <laughs> uh, 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 well, so story. I got what I wanted. And when you walk down the street and, and, and Jean Beliveau comes over and gives you a hug, I mean, uh, to me, and Rocket Richard would come down to my dress room. And you look at all these Wonderful and Serge Savard with the pizza. <laughs> yeah. You just look at all of these things and you say, I don't believe in luck, but boy, am I a lucky guy. Yeah. You are, Stewie. And listen, you earned it, you earned everything you got in hockey. Uh, you, you battled for it. You fought for it. Uh, you fought for your life with the cancer. And, and God bless you. you. You had an awesome career. And Hopefully that continues here at some point with uh, That's why I was glad maybe to going back to Russia. Because I'm, I'm very proud of you. 
I tell well, I people it. about that. I know you've you've had your challenges and you've had your moments, and we all face those things after the crowd stops roaring. And the the interesting thing is that you've you've resurrected yourself, and and your heart's as big as as the Mystic River Bridge. You're, uh, you're I appreciate bridged, it. You've bridged a lot of gaps for a lot of people, and. Uh, People can say whatever they want about you. They can say whatever they want about me. But they can never say that we ever backed down. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Yeah. Stewie, listen, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Raw Knuckles podcast. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe.